0: This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. I'm Amy Mollett, and in our first episode, we consider the study of language. Cheryl Brumley talks to linguistic anthropologist Professor Dan Everett, who tells us why Noam Chomsky has it wrong.
1: We know that humans are different from other creatures for a variety of reasons, and those reasons, combined with human culture and, and the need to communicate, seem to explain all the things we need to explain about language without appealing to some mysterious universal grammar whose properties are very unclear.
0: And we speak to T.S. Eliot prize-winning poet Philip Gross, who discusses his late father's loss of language.
2: There was this structure of language in him, and nothing makes you appreciate what language is worth and how brilliant it is that humans, almost all of us, can do it at all than watching this grand architecture gradually crumbling from the inside out.
0: We'll also hear from LSE economist and broadcaster Linda Yu on which books inspired her to become an academic. This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. Welcome to our very first episode. These podcasts will serve as an online accompaniment to the book reviews and features published on the blog. Through thought-provoking interviews with authors and academics about their latest books, we aim to give our listeners insight into the ideas that drive debate at our universities. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just email lscreviewofbooks@lsc.ac.uk at lse.ac.uk or tweet us at lscreviewbooks. First up, we talk to linguist Dan Everett about his controversial new book, which is causing quite a stir in linguistic circles. Cheryl Brumley has more.
3: I am joined by Daniel Everett, who is currently the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Bentley University in Massachusetts, and is most known for his studies into the remote Amazonian tribe, the Bidaha, whom he lived with for nearly eight years. In those years, he unearthed a very unique language, which he claims openly challenges linguistic theories as set out by Noam Chomsky and Steven Pinker. Welcome to the LSE Review Books Podcast, Dan.
1: It's wonderful to be here with you.
3: In your new book, Language, a Cultural Tool, you're saying something deceptively simple. When it comes to language, form follows function. Culture also influences language in ways not recognized by many linguists. Where did you first get this idea?
1: I first got the idea of the importance of culture when I started to realize that we couldn't... understand linguistic form without understanding the meanings, and then realizing that the meanings themselves derive from the cultural values that people hold.
3: And so you say that language is a tool as a result. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Humans are the only creatures uh, known that have to have social contact and social communication to be able to survive. That probably has been part of human beings for a million years, us and our ancestors. So we have to communicate to be able to build community, and the way we, we communicate, that's a problem for us, to solve the communication problem, and that is solved by language. Language is the tool that we have invented and developed over our history to be able to communicate with one another.
3: Can you explain how words like cousin or grandfather reveal language as a communicative tool?
1: Kinship terms are very important in most societies because they regulate marriage relationships Most of the kinship terms that we use in English, cousin, aunt, uncle, uh, come from French. So if you call someone cousin, that probably means you can't marry them. If you call them sister, you can't marry them. If you call them uh, by distant enough relationships, you can. The pitaha kinship system is the simplest known. It has only generation above, no distinction for gender. So mother and father are the same word. So all pitaha of my generation are called... Uh, sibling, whether they're male, female, or actually my brother or sister. And all pitaha of a generation below me are called child. The only gender-distinguished kinship terms in pitaha are son and daughter. That means, since it's such a a free system, that a pitaha can marry just about anyone that they want to in the society, but they do avoid incest with immediate family members, which shows that that particular taboo isn't governed by language.
3: And also, it seemed to me, when reading your book, the Bidaha language is in some ways characterized more by what it lacks. Lack of comparatives, there are lack of color terms, lack of phatic words, like, thank you, that's okay. But with all these absences, you have revealed some unique insights into language and how it's formed. Take, for example, the immediacy of experience principle for the Pidaha.
1: Yes, the immediacy of experience principle uh, is a principle that I've formulated to help capture the Pidaha's focus on the present, the fact that they do not talk about the distant past. They do not talk about the distant future. They, they don't use words that require abstractions um, beyond what's absolutely essential for communications. They keep out all but the bare essentials. And and this this is fundamental for structuring their language as a whole because Pidaha don't utter things uh, unless you can say you saw it directly, someone told you, or you deduced it. Uh, That's another reason they don't talk about the distant past or the distant future because no one saw those things.
3: And another reason why they may not have words for great-grandfather as you said.
1: Exactly. So they don't have words that for kinship terms that go beyond lived experience. So we can talk about our great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather all the way back for hundreds of years. They've never seen those people so they don't talk about them. They have no terms to refer to them. They just talk about the people that in principle can be seen while you're alive.
3: You talk very candidly about how you went to the Amazon originally as a missionary and when you would tell some of the Bidaha biblical stories, they simply didn't have the capacity to discuss it.
1: Right. So one day the uh, Pinaha fellow came in with a, a lot of Pinaha sitting around and he said, so Dan, is Jesus brown like us or is he white like you? And I said, well, some people say he was brown and some people say he was white. And they said, but, uh, you know, what do you say? I mean, you, you saw him and I said, I didn't see him well, what did your father say? He must have seen him. And I said, you know, nope, I don't know anyone who saw Jesus. And then their reaction was, why are you telling us about him?
3: What was in your mind as far as what you wanted to achieve whilst writing this book?
1: Right. Language, the cultural tool, argues that there's really no work for a language instinct to do or a universal grammar. We know that humans are different from other creatures for a variety of reasons. And those reasons, combined with human culture and the need to communicate, seem to explain all the things we need to explain about language without appealing to some mysterious universal grammar whose properties are very unclear.
3: And also you say in the conclusion that you wrote it simply because you love language and this seems to be a recurring theme because the Pidaha language you call a language of happiness.
1: The pitaha's language because it doesn't give them w- ways to talk about uh Regret. This doesn't mean they couldn't possibly regret something. It just means they choose not to talk about these things, and their grammar reflects these choices. And so in that sense, uh, it's, it's kind of a grammar of happiness. But I extend that to all languages in the book, saying that each language, since it reflects our values and who we are as people, brings us happiness, and it's one reason that we are able to relate to people who speak our language like we do better often than we can relate to other people.
3: And um, how has this been received by other linguists who may be of the Chomsky view that language is
1: inherent? Well, I, ha- I have received a lot of uh, hate mail over the last uh, few days, but I've also received a lot of uh, of praise. So uh, people divide according to what they think the nature of language is, and and this is a debate that that can't be settled overnight. I hope that this book is a contribution to our understanding of the nature of human language. Uh, but it's, it's going to have severe resistance in some quarters and great acceptance in others, probably.
3: Do you think the controversy that your research has caused in some circles reveals a certain flaw in academia?
1: Yeah, we, humans are subject to a force called tribalism that affects all of us, and we can't live without it. And it's never more clear than in academics we build we 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 elect uh, someone uh... Uh, leading academic to be our, our chief and we, we want to follow this person, we want to uh, support their ideas and, and uh, our career is based on that and somebody who comes along and says that's wrong uh, has to be resisted. They're an outsider and I'm not trying to trivialize the problems uh, and, and the real issues in academics but any, any academic, anyone who's been close to academics knows that like many other professions such as politics, that is a huge force.
3: Thank you so much, Daniel Everett.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
3: That was Dan Everett talking about
0: his book Language, a Cultural Tool. The LSE recently held its annual literary festival, a week-long event which explored the relationship between the arts and social sciences. We caught up with Professor of Creative Writing at Glamorgan University, Philip Gross, and asked him about his lecture at the festival.
2: It's an event very ambitiously called Poetry Unites, and uh, it is a series of films from Poland in which various ordinary people who are not specialist readers are asked to choose a favourite and read a poem in their own voice. Um, What we're investigating is ways in which there's something about poetry as a form of writing that can, can cross boundaries and barriers between people and cultures and even languages in ways that, that straightforward prose, which I could say merely makes sense, might not. So the depth at, at which a poem can get inside a person and become part of them. There's also a film in which a poem of mine gets taken apart and, and read by about 20 separate readers. It's a poem called Room Inside. And it's about our interior spaces. And there are lots of, of lines that say there could be that kind of space or this or that. And each reader chose one line which they felt sounded like their interior space. And it was filmed, it's a video, in, in which they are actually reading it at home in their most private inward space.
0: The poems in your latest collection, Deep Field, they tenderly tell the story of your late father's loss of language. And our world, especially on university campus, is full of books, and texts that chart the journey that we take with language so whether that's studies on dialect change or uh, how to learn spanish or um, the way that abbreviated forms are, are changing the way that we communicate but the story that you tell is is a very different story a very personal and kind of reflective path when you were writing were you did you have a sense that this was a new story or, or a different story that you were telling
2: in a sense it is the story of human life on earth and it is entirely about language and journeys. It's because my father was a wartime refugee who was born in Estonia which in in the course of, of the Second World War was occupied not once but three times back and forth and back and forth. So when the Red Army walked in for its second occupation my father like lots of estonians fled vaguely westwards but he spent years wandering across europe ending up eventually in britain by which time for obvious life-saving reasons he had picked up not just english but german and russian and smatterings sort of a few other languages on the way so So there was this structure of language in him. And nothing makes you appreciate what language is worth and how brilliant it is that that humans, almost all of us, can do it at all than watching this grand architecture gradually crumbling from the inside out. So it's not just about him, if you like. It's both an elegy for and a celebration of language. Ninety now, you're adrift on the vowel stream. The crisp edge of all your five languages gone, and we're back to the least of language. It's all one, your, his, or my slight modulations of the bare vowel of animal need. So even here, how they give us away our vowel sounds, class, place, family secrets, the wrong school or side of the blanket or overstayed visa, let slip between one consonant and the next.
0: I just wanted to ask you about the water table. So in 2009, you won the T.S. Eliot Prize for this very beautiful and very dreamlike collection of poems exploring the substance and movement of water, particularly the River Severn, and we're sitting here a stone's throw away from the Thames. I just wondered if we might be reading a different set of poems if the River Thames, for example, had been the main subject.
2: It certainly wasn't abstractly about water, it was that very particular bit of water It's where the River Severn has not quite made up its mind whether it's stopped being a river and started being sea yet. And it can't make up its mind whether it wants to be water or land because it's got such a freight of mud in it. So it's so ambiguous. Just after sunset and the tide high, almost white, Dull, lambent, like nothing the sky holds or could lend it. Each shore, this and that shore, black. A particular blackness, pinned in place by each house or street lamp. Done with. As if land was night, and us its night thoughts, And the river was the draining down of daylight, Westwards and out of the world. I think one of the reasons that that water is a very good subject for, if if you like, meditation is that in itself it's almost nothing. Pure water in in, in a glass is colourless, odourless, it's hardly anything, but what you experience of it is what gets either reflected in it or refracted in it or floating on it or dissolved in it in all kinds of impurities and that's what really interests me about the world
0: well it strikes me that in london with such a, a busy racing impatient kind of heart or structure there there's little time to study the the kind of intricate details and and whether it's mundane or beautiful or how things interact is it a poet's task to, to slow things down and to expose these these beautiful or even mundane everyday things for us?
2: It might look like that, but most of the things I write were noticed in an instant, were often sc- scribbled in their fir- first impulse in five minutes or on a train while I'm hurrying between one place and the next I'm very pleased if I create the impression that I'm leading a spacious meditative kind of life (sighs) if only (laughs) (laughs) or maybe not if only maybe you maybe that's not what the work would happen either maybe part of of that inward outward self uh, and other tension is also a tension between fast and slow
0: Going back to Estonia, um, in January 2011, you kept a blog about your visit there, recording your thoughts on culture and um, tiny aspects of of street scenes. How did the idea to uh, record your thoughts in a blog come about?
2: Because I'm a writer, and writers are those unfortunate people who never feel that they have really existed in, in the world, unless in some sense they've written it down. And I look better, and, and I see things better when i 'm either writing or i 'm in a kind of writing stance
0: and did you find the experience of writing a blog more rewarding than poetry, or was it were there similarities? Is it completely different?
2: I am not a paid up member of the blogosphere. I know there are writers who whose Every moment of every life gets recorded like that. I will not be one of them. I, I will send an occasional blog postcards when the moment is, is right and when I know who I'm, I'm writing it for and why. The thought of broadcasting everything to everybody without looking them in the eye, in, in some sense, feels very alien.
0: Um, do you feel, at university, do you feel a pressure to, to make a social impact or to, to kind of engage with, with, you know, get more involved with public engagement? Is it a pressure that you feel so much, or at the moment particularly?
2: It depends how, at any given moment, your university is defining the word impact. If they mean, does it make money, then that, that's another problem. But anyone who, who's a writer, obviously we want an impact, obviously we are engaging with other people, well, what else? Why else would we be doing it? That's <laughs> a crazy occupation otherwise.
0: Perhaps it comes naturally then? Uh,
2: yes, though no, it doesn't mean that we are effortless exhibitionists. Quite a lot of writers, or at least me, might look like introverts, but are probably very shy extroverts.
0: Philip Gross, thank you very much for joining us on the LSE Review of Books podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you. Every
0: week on the LSE Review of Books blog, we feature an academic discussing the books that inspired them. We've already had Nobel Prize-winning political scientist Eleanor Ostrom and gender and masculinity theorist Raywin Connell. To complement these written accounts, Each podcast will also feature an academic talking about the books that inspired them. LSE economist and broadcaster Linda Yu now tells us how economics books weren't the only inspiration for her entry into the field.
4: I became interested in economics through non economic books. So, one of the books that really struck me when I was at university was written by the historian Paul Kennedy The Rise and Fall of Nations. And even though it was a history book and mostly about geopolitics, I think it opened my eyes for the first time to thinking about much bigger forces that drive prosperity and wealth. And then I think I started reading more economics type of books. And another book that was just very inspirational was by John Kenneth Galbraith, The Great Society. So in that sense, I was drawn into economics by the wider changes in the world and realizing that I needed to understand the kinds of tools and concepts that could help me analyze what the prospects for improving um, people's livelihood was. So that was really my first introduction to economics, not probably via um, the normal kind of route. And in terms of the books that I think would be very good for people to take a look at if they were interested in economics. I think the recent advent of, I should say, popular type of books um, are actually a very good way of enticing people who don't necessarily think that they're that interested in economics to take a look. So in that way, it echoes my own interest, which is I started off reading history books and then became interested in economics. So obviously, a very popular book in recent years is Freakonomics by the Chicago economist Stephen Levitt. And I think the beauty of that book is that it's so simple in explaining how it is very complicated economic models and theories can help you understand specific parts of the world. And in that sense, I'm also trying to write a macro book, so about growth and changes in the world, um, over the past few years, thinking through what the real structural changes in the world economy are, but in a way that's understandable and can be widely accessed. So, in a sense, a macro version of uh, free economics, which is very much about micro type of behavior. And I think some other books, which I certainly do enjoy reading, although I always wonder what economists do end up reading about in their spare time. And I think many of us are probably reluctant to admit we read economics books, um, but I think several of us do. So, um, you know, books that I have read in my spare time include Joseph Stiglitz' Globalization and Its Discontents. It's a very good, not just narrative about how the world economy and poverty and development has changed, but also from his own personal experience working in the World Bank. I think that's a very nice entree into that world. And also Paul Krugman, who writes extremely uh, lucidly and insightfully. His book, Pop Internationalism, is one of the best introductions to a difficult part of economics, I think, for non-economists, which is international trade. But then in my spare time, I do also read non-economics books. <laughs> and um, one of my favorite genre books are autobiographies. There are good ones, there are bad ones. Um, My favourite is the autobiography of Bertrand Russell. This is not because he's a mathematician, but (laughs) it's because he is um, an interesting, multifaceted person who actually did win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. The self-examination of such a varied life, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. And I do finally want to say I did also plough through I can't remember exactly how many pages, but it was a lot of pages of Bill Clinton's My Life. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I, I think in terms of reading, I think it's good to read both inside and outside of, of your profession because you never know where inspiration might strike. And who knows, if Bertrand Russell can win the Pulitzer Prize for literature, there may be, even be hope for economists who do a lot of uh, writing as well.
0: That was Linda Yu. Thanks for joining us on our very first episode here at the LSE Review of Books. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley and we'd also like to thank Babito, Eric5335, Corsica, Ryan Samba and Mr. Cool at freesound.org for the music and sound used in today's episode. Join us next month as we explore gender studies and the legacy of feminist scholarship. We talk to film expert Dr Melanie Bell about female protagonists and why we should consider film through a gender lens. And Leslie Hall talks to us about the history of early feminists and the impact of their early campaigning on feminism today. Find us on the web at lsereviewofbooks.com. I'm Amy Mollett. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.